Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfund.com. So we're going to do two more on Samson this week and next week, and then I'm, uh, then I'm going to be on holidays. So, so uh, yeah, holidays. What? Why, right? What do we do here, these pastors, right? Um, Pastor Ray will be back next Friday. He won't be preaching yet next week. I will, but then after that, he'll be up, and, and uh, looking forward to having him back. I was uh, back and forth with him a little bit again this week, and some amazing, uh, amazing things happening out west there. Just, they just had a, another meeting with a bunch of pastors, and lots of church renewal stuff have been, has been going on this uh, summer, which is exciting. And uh, so, Samson part four, and you know, I have plans. I, I think thoughts. I do a series on Samson. I think I'll do, I'll do each of the chapters in the Samson story, and then it just, it just goes. I can't do, I just can't. So, uh, we'll, uh, three weeks ago, I thought I had kind of finished chapter 14, but we'll just go and do chapter 14 again, and uh, <laughs> I'll just have to do another series on Samson, and maybe we'll get to 15. I think next week, I'm going to try to do the last half of chapter 16, but anyway, I'm going to read you some of the exact same verses to start this message. Well, maybe let's just pray, and maybe God will actually help me through this, but... but uh, We'll read some of the exact same verses we've been going through, but there's just some stuff in there. I thought, you know, I'm just going to glaze over this at the beginning, and then that just turned into the whole message. And, and, uh, I, but we're going to talk about the power of a consecrated life today, the power of a consecrated life. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we pray for uh, Pastor and Fran, Mom and Dad out there on the West Coast, Lord Jesus. Uh, so much work has been done uh, this summer, and it's to advance your kingdom and uh, church renewal. Father, we just pray that you would uh, fill them with your spirit this last week as dad is doing a lot of writing and stuff and more meetings and pray that you would just bless them. Bless them in their health. Bless them spiritually. Bless them with joy and peace and, uh, and lots of energy for this upcoming uh, year. And, uh, and Father, I just pray that as we think about church renewal, Father, I, I just continually pray that we would be a people here itself and that would, be, that would be renewed, that we would be a church worthy of emulating by other churches across this country, that we would be a church filled with your spirit, full of vulnerable, humble, godly, loving people. And I pray today as we talk about Samson again for a fourth time, Jesus, I love that this story is in your word. I love your grace, and I just pray that you would speak through it again today. In your name we pray, amen. So uh, Judges 14, and uh, we'll look at the first nine verses here. And again, Samson went down to Timnah, and we've read this part right in a Timnah. He saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, and then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. And we talked about the whole seeing thing and the lust thing. And then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. And we've looked at this as well. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And we talked about how Samson's strength, was, it wasn't his own strength. It was the strength of the Spirit of the Lord. But I want you to notice something else in this verse that we haven't touched on yet in this uh, series. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Now that's really interesting right there. Why? wouldn't he tell his father and his mother what he had done? I don't know about you, if I tore apart a young lion with my bare hands, I would be telling everybody. (laughs) I think even some of you women would, but for sure us guys, the way we're wired is we just want someone to admire us, right? Like you make a shot, you uh, dunk on a seven-foot basket, and it's like, woo, look at me, right? I'm incredible. And uh, that's what us guys want. We just feed on affirmation. Look at even the most minor physical feat. 
you know, whatever, whatever, you know, if, you, if you're in construction, construction guys are always bragging, you know, I once put up X number of feet of walls in one day, and, and roofing guys, I put up X number of shingles one day, and, and we like, that's how us guys are. We want to brag, we especially want some lady somewhere to admire us and look up to us. <laughs> Samson rips apart a lion, and he says nothing, and the, and the writer goes out of his way to say, but he did not tell his father and his mother what he had done. I would go home straight and be like, mom and dad, I just... I just ripped apart a lion with my bare hands. Wow, son, way to go, right? Um, that's happiness for a man, okay? That's happiness. A little pat on the back. And uh, there's not much we guys need. There's only three things I heard once, and we won't actually go into what those three things are. But <laughs> food, a pat on the back, and something else, which I'll just go without mentioning. But we're going to see this again in just a couple of verses because the writer of Judges actually emphasizes this in the passage twice. And it's important what we want to talk about. Verse 7, then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, so probably this is actually a couple of months later, um, probably after the harvest or whatever. But anyway, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lions. Okay, so by turning aside, what it means there in the Hebrew is it's not that he just looked over at the lion, because the, the lion was not just at the side of the road. And this is important. You, you see previously in the verses I read before that he was in the vineyards. And so as he's walking along the road, it turns aside, means he goes off the track a ways uh, to go and see this line. So obviously he's, he's a little bit impressed with what he's done, but, it, but it's off in the vineyard somewhere. Where this happened was off in the vineyard somewhere, and that's important for what we're going to look at in just a moment. And behold, and we keep reading, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey, he scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave uh, some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So again, Samson does not tell his parents. Okay? He doesn't say, you know, look at me how brave I am. There's a whole, you know, hive of wild bees in the carcass of a lion. I scooped it out. And again, the writer is emphasizing here, but he did not tell his mother and his father. Why would he not tell his mother, mother and his father? And why would the writer of Judges go out of his way two times in this passage to tell us this? This is obviously something important to the Samson story. And so in order to figure that out, we have to go back to something we talked about in the first message of this series, and uh, that is the fact that Samson was a Nazarite. Okay, if we look back again at Judges chapter 13, this is from the first message. I'll just review a couple of things. It says this in Judges 13, 7, the angel talking to Samson's mom said this, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. He shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And a Nazarite, again, as we talked about there a few weeks ago, was someone who was separated, who was devoted to the Lord. Okay? And so to be a Nazarite, to be separated to the Lord, to be devoted to the Lord, there was three vows that went with being a, a, a Nazarite. First of all, you couldn't touch anything eat, uh, you know, that was made by grapes. You couldn't eat grapes. You couldn't eat uh, dried grapes. You couldn't eat grape juice. You couldn't eat uh, grape you know, wine made from grapes. You, nothing from grapes for a Nazarite. Okay? Second thing is a Nazarite can never touch a dead body. And third thing, a Nazarite can never uh, have his or her haircut. Uh, females could take the vow as well. Okay? And so Na Samson was a Nazarite for life. He was, he was specially... Now, it, not, not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with getting your hair cut. There's nothing wrong with eating grapes. Obviously, God made them. There's nothing wrong with, you know, in, inappropriately, uh, you know, you, someone dies, a loved one dies. There's nothing wrong with touching a dead body or animals, uh, all that sort of thing. There's nothing wrong with any of those three things. The point of being a Nazarite was not that God hates grapes 
or God doesn't want us to take care of dead bodies, or God doesn't want us to cut our hair. That's not at all what it's about. The point of being a Nazarite is I am separate to the Lord. It's almost like fasting. I'm saying no to some perfectly good things so I can be consecrated. That's what the word consecrated means, separate. I can be separate. I'm, I'm especially devoted to the Lord. I'm saying no to some good things in order that I can more uh, fully devote myself to the Lord. And now you can begin to see uh, why the writer of Judges is emphasizing so much Samson did not tell his parents because what he's reminding us of, this is, and by the way, chapter 14 is the very beginning of the Samson story. Chapter 13 just tells us about Samson's birth. Okay, chapter 14 is where we actually start getting into his life. So chapter 14, this is right from the very beginning of the story. What we see is that Samson is breaking his consecration. He's breaking his separation. He's supposed to be a vessel specially devoted to the Lord, and he's breaking it right from the beginning. So the reason he doesn't tell his parents about the, killing the lion is because that lion came and attacked him when he was in the vineyard. What is a Nazarite doing in a, in a, in a vineyard? Nothing, nothing good can come out of that, okay? Was he licking the grapes? Okay, I'm not, technically I'm not eating them. Okay, he shouldn't have been in the, in the vineyard. So a lion attacks him when he's in the vineyard. It's sort of like the guy who calls in sick at work and he goes golfing and then he shoots a hole in one. That's actually torture. I mean, the Lord did that, right? To punish him because he can't tell anybody about it. Hey guys, I shot a hole in one at the fly-in yesterday. Uh, no, I was really sick yesterday. And... Uh, he can't say anything. It's the same with Samson in, in, in a vineyard. Mom and dad, I just killed a lion. Oh, that's amazing, son. Let's go see the car. Oh, yeah, so where did it happen? Um, you know, I actually didn't kill a lion today. That's okay. He doesn't want to tell him because he's, he's breaking his consecration. He shouldn't have been in the vineyard. That's where he killed the lion. And then he goes and he goes to see the lion. There's honey in there. He scrapes honey out. He is not supposed to be touching a dead body. Again, there's nothing immoral about touching a dead body. There's nothing immoral about, about eating grapes. But Samson was a person who was supposed to be especially devoted to the Lord, consecrated. And so in the Old Testament, they even talk about things being consecrated to the Lord. Things, utensils could be consecrated to the Lord. And when something was consecrated to the Lord, it could be a, a fork or a, a knife or some kind of utensil or a pot. When something was consecrated to the Lord, that meant it was, it was only for the Lord's service. It could no longer be used for regular, everyday use, common use. It was now devoted to the Lord. Samson was supposed to be consecrated. He was supposed to be devoted to the Lord. And so he can't talk about killing a lion because he was in the wrong place when he did that. He can't talk about the honey because he was touching a dead body Right from the very beginning of his life, Sam, or of his adult life, Samson was breaking from his separation. He was breaking from his consecration. And, and I touched on this a few weeks ago, but the thing you have to understand is this was not a salvation issue. Okay, it's not a salvation issue. It's not like Samson eating a grape or drinking some, some juice or some wine, and then God says, hey, I now hate you. You're on your way to hell. Samson is going to be in heaven someday. And that's what, I'm, that's what I want to talk about next week. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about him, and that's the grace of God. All the messing up he did. This is not a salvation issue. Samson eating grapes, being in a vineyard, not a salvation issue. Samson touching a de dead body, not a salvation issue. Samson getting his hair cut, not a salvation issue. This is not about God loving Samson more or less. God loves Samson the exact same amount all the way through. But what this is an issue of is the power of the Spirit of God. So Samson didn't get hated by God because he did these things. But what did happen to him is he lost the power of God. 
And the moment his separation to God was gone, the moment his consecration to God was gone, it wasn't that God hated him, but the Spirit of God and the power of the Spirit of God could no longer be on him. I'll show you this if we skip ahead to when he gets his hair cut. I'll just read you one verse. We looked at this a few weeks ago. But Judges 16, 17, A razor has never come upon my head, he says to Delilah, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. In other words, I've been separated to God from birth. And, and, and in that consecration, in that I am separated to God, the Spirit of God, there's power on me because of that. The, the love of God isn't on him because of his separation, but the, the, but the power of God is on him because of his separation. And then he says this, If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man, okay? And so the cutting of the hair was the last Nazarite vow. It was the last visible sign that he was consecrated to the Lord. And the moment that was gone, all his strength was gone. But you know, right from chapter 14, he's breaking his consecration right from then. And he doesn't lose the physical strength part of it in chapter 14, but he does lose the moral strength immediately. There's no accident that in chapter 14, he's already breaking with his consecration. He's breaking with his separation. He wants to live like everybody else. And as a result, he also has no moral strength at any point in his life to say no to temptation. He has no moral strength. He's off in the vineyards, and it's, there's a direct connection. He's off in the vineyards, living like everybody else, and there's a direct connection to that, the fact that throughout his entire life, he cannot beat lust. He cannot. He doesn't have the moral strength to beat lust. Later, when he gets his hair cut, he also loses his physical strength. But his strength, the strength of the Spirit of God, was on him, not the love of God, but the strength of the Spirit of God was on him in accordance with his consecration, his separation to the Lord. You say, how does this apply to us today? Well, how many Christians today, how many of us today are living without power? How many of us are here this morning and we're living without power? We're living without the power to say no to temptation. We're living without the power to have joy. We're living without the power to bear fruit for the kingdom. No power. We go through the motions. We go to church. We do all those God things and we believe the right things, but there's no power in our lives has something to do with consecration. All of these Old Testament stories were given to us to train us. But before I talk about that, I want to do a, a, a pre-planned rabbit trail for a few minutes, okay? Because it really doesn't have a lot to do with the message today, but it kind of ties in, and it's just something I want to talk about. But I want to just talk about what kind of power do I mean? Because I'm going to talk a lot then in the, at the end of this message about power and God's spirit power in us and how it flows through us and how he does that, just like with Samson and how it can come and go. But before I do that, I just want to make sure that we know what kind of power I'm talking about, okay? And I'm not talking about all the power to do all kinds of crazy signs and wonders and miracles, okay? That's not, when I talk about the power of God on your life, uh, there's some people out there, they, they measure the power of God in a person's life by how many miracles, how many signs and wonders that person does, okay? And certainly, yes, God does miracles today. How many people here believe that God still does miracles today? I do. I have a journal on my computer with miracles in answer to prayer that God has done in my life, and there's lots of them. And I praise God for that. And we pray for healing here at pretty much every prayer summit. And we see people healed. I have a 40-page document on my computer as well here in the office with testimonies from you guys, email testimonies of people who have had miracles in their lives. It's awesome. And other people on staff have similar things. That's where we get a lot of our video testimonies uh, from, okay? So I'm not against miracles. I love miracles. We pray for healing. We pray for miracles. But I'm going to talk a lot about power here today and the power of a consecrated life, and I want to make sure that we're not, that word power 
has gotten a little bit skewed in some of our Christian culture that I don't want you guys thinking that the measure of power is how many miracles am I doing and how big prayers am I praying. That's not what I'm talking about today. There's a lot more to what the Spirit of God wants to do in your life than just miracles. In fact, it, miracles and signs and wonders are not the sign of a faith-filled Christian. Did you know that? See, in certain circles today, that's the test. A faith-filled, mature Christian is a person who is going out there and doing all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders in some charismatic circles. That's the test. The Bible nowhere uses miracles or signs and wonders as the basis for a test of, of your maturity. Did you know that? In fact, the Bible tells us very simply what the test of a, of a person's maturity is, and it's this. John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my, my disciples by how many miracles you do. I saw a couple of people look up suddenly. They had been asleep. And uh, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love, right, for one another. The sign uh, that the Spirit of God is at work in your life, the sign that you are a mature, spirit-filled believer, the sign that you are full of faith is not how many miracles and signs and wonders you do, although God may do signs and wonders through you. But that is not the sign. The sign is how much do you love people? The sign that God is at work in a church is not how many signs and wonders happen there. It is love. That is what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this. End the sentence. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, miracles, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says it doesn't matter how much supernatural stuff is happening in a body of believers, in a church, in, a, in an area, or in a person's life. It has nothing to do with signs and wonders. It has to do with love. I could also show you some verses that talk about holiness. The sign that the Spirit of God is in a place, in a person, is there is supernatural love and there is supernatural holiness, and it's the same for a church, it's the same for a place. You want to see where the Spirit of God is, you don't look for where's the signs and wonders happening, you look for where's the love and the holiness. And again, I'm not bringing this up because I'm against miracles, and, I, and certainly I think as we walk closer with God, there will be more miracles, but the reason I bring this up right now, and the reason I wanted to talk about it in this message on Samson, is I just, I feel like there's a movement among young people in our culture, not just here in this church, but I feel like there's a movement among young people in our culture, as a general rule, in Christian culture, that they're hungry for something more. Our churches have been empty of power. And so they're looking for power, but they're looking for the wrong kind of power. And what they're looking for is grainy YouTube videos, you know, in Africa or at some conference somewhere where some angelic manifestation happened, and they think that's where God's at work. And they're looking for power. They're looking for the presence of God, but they're looking for the wrong sign of the presence of God. And they're running all over the world looking for miracles, and they're looking for the wrong thing. The Bible repeatedly says that the sign that God is at work in a group of people is love and holiness. And I think part of the problem comes from a misunderstanding of the book of Acts. I want to just look at the book of Acts because I sometimes hear people wringing their hands, right? And not just from this church, other churches too. But it's like, why don't we see more miracles? Why don't we see more miracles? And it's almost like there's this guilt of like, something must be wrong with us. Somewhere over there where they're talking about miracles, they obviously have something we don't because we don't see enough miracles. It's like this condemnation guilt thing. Like, God, we must be doing something wrong. We must be missing something. And part of it is because of how some teachers are teaching the book of Acts. And some teachers today 
teach the book of Acts as if the book of Acts, now certainly is the book of Acts, that, that's kind of our blueprint, eh? Like how many of you would like to be a church like the book of Acts? I would, okay? Not many of you. Uh, that's what we're going for here, okay? Just so you know, so you want to leave. If you just want boring, dead church, then go somewhere else. We're going for Acts. But anyway, the book of Acts is our, is our blueprint, okay? That's what we want. We want the book of Acts. But the thing is, a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what the book of Acts teaches, and as a result, they have a wrong expectation, and that's why they do this with the wringing of the hands. A lot of people read the book of Acts, and they think the book of Acts teaches that there was a time in church history when regular believers were just running all over the place, and everybody was just doing miracles and signs and wonders. It's like you just get up in the morning, and angels bring you your toothbrush, and angels carry you into the shower, and you're just blessing people, and everybody's getting healed, and it was just miracles everywhere. And actually, did you know, that's not what the book of Acts teaches. It's actually not a careful reading of the book of Acts. When we read the book of Acts and think that everybody was just running around doing signs and wonders as if it was nothing, it's not true. In fact, the book of Acts repeatedly says something and emphasizes something, it emphasizes that it, was, that, that it was the apostles. Now, again, I, certainly regular people saw miracles in the book of Acts. Not even a question. And certainly we see regular people here today even praying for miracles and seeing miracles. I absolutely believe that. I'm not against miracles. But we read the book of Acts as saying everybody was just doing miracles all over the place, and that's how it should be today. But if you actually read the book of Acts carefully, you'll find that the book of Acts doesn't talk about regular people doing miracles. It talks about the apostles doing miracles for the purpose of evangelism. This is important. I'm not trying to hit your faith. I'm trying to hit your expectations. You don't need to worry about the wrong thing. Let me show you this. Some of you don't even believe this. I'm going to show you the two most famous miracle passages in the book of Acts. And we'll start with Acts chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people. And everybody's going, see, if you were a church like the book of Acts, we should all be running around doing signs and wonders. Okay? Let's just finish the sentence by the hands of the apostles, okay? Now again, my point here is that regular people can't see miracles, not at all. My point here is that nobody in the early church ever did, no regular people ever did miracles. That's not my point, surely they did. But my point is that's not what the book of Acts tells us. The book of Acts tells us it was the apostles who were running around doing miracles everywhere, and it also tells us they were doing it for a purpose. I'm gonna show you that in just a moment. But let me also just quickly show you Acts chapter 2, which is the other very famous passage about the early church and about miracles. It says this in verses 42 to 43. And the people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. That's what the people did. The people, they weren't running around looking for signs and wonders. The people devoted themselves to community, to the breaking of bread and prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to community. And awe came upon every, every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This is repeated again and again throughout the book of Acts. If you read it carefully, you'll find it there. If we go back to Acts chapter 5 now, I'm going to show you here why the apostles were doing miracles and why God was pouring out signs and wonders there, verses 12 through 15. And, they, and the people were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women were coming to Christ. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter, again, one of the apostles, came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So that's really important. I want to show you two things in this passage. The context. 
for the outpouring of signs and wonders, okay? The apostles were doing signs and wonders, and again, this is, I, I, I repeat, read my lips. <laughs> I'm not saying regular people never prayed and saw miracles in early church. All I'm saying is that's not what the book of Acts talks about. And we don't need to wring our hands and ask, why do we not see more miracles here? We need to wring our hands and say, why do we not see more love and holiness? But they were done by the apostles. Why? In the context of evangelism. They were working signs and wonders so that people would come to Jesus. And do you know that if you look throughout church history, the greatest outpourings of signs and wonders consistently, it happens in the context of two things, and we see them both here. One is in the context of reaching people for the gospel, and the other one is it's in the context of persecution. You notice here in this verse, I'll just get them to underline it up there, none of the rest dared join them. They were spreading the gospel in an environment where people were afraid and where the gospel was persecuted. And if you look throughout church history, the greatest outpourings of signs and wonders. See, my problem is some of these extreme teachers today in, in a charismatic movement, they teach, and many of them love Jesus, sincere believers, I'm not against them, but they teach an extreme view of miracles. And it's just like, we should just all be doing miracles in our comfortable daily lives in order to live even more comfortable lives. That is not the purpose of miracles. God, would, throughout history and in the book of Acts, the leaders of the church, the apostles, were doing signs and wonders in order to advance the gospel and win people to Christ in an environment of fear and persecution. And if we look around the world again today, we see the exact same thing happening. We have books in our library. Uh, Dreams and Visions is one in particular that's amazing, but of what's happening right now in the Muslim world. Thousands upon thousands of Muslims are getting saved every year. Not, you know, every, in the last hundred years. We're talking about every single year, thousands and thousands of Muslims are getting saved in the most scary, oppressed places on earth. And they're getting saved through signs and wonders and powerful dreams and visions in places where it would be very difficult for mission, missionaries to go there. I read a, a book. I'm going to actually put the picture up there. And some of you might want to read it. It's a great book. I, I recommend it, but it's... Uh, a book by Andrew White. It's called Faith Under Fire. I read it a few years ago. And he's, a, he's called the vicar of, of Baghdad. He's an Anglican pastor of a historical church there in Baghdad. It used, it, at its peak, I think it had about 6,000 people. I don't know what it's at now. But uh, it's his story. And, in there, and, I, and like I said, I highly recommend it. And in the book, he talks about incredible, powerful miracles and signs and wonders that happen in, in his church at Baghdad. I mean, these, they have angelic visitations, so powerful, He's captured lots of them on pictures. There's pictures in the book. Okay, some of you, some of you just lit up. Some of you guys, pictures, okay? <laughs> just snip that part of the book and put it in the library. Put 100 copies in the library. But uh, yeah, right in the middle of the book. You can, you can take the book out. Um, we're gonna, I, I don't even know if we have it in our library yet. If we don't, I'm going to order it. But you can just order it. It's just a small book. He actually has pictures in the middle of the book, picture after picture after picture of angels and signs and wonders that happen at their meetings. And you go, look at that! Wow! Like, that's what we should be having that here. What's wrong with us here that we don't have that here? Okay? But the other thing you don't understand is there's something else that goes on at this church besides signs and wonders, and that is church members get murdered all the time. He will often, they will often have months at this church where 60 or 70 church members in that church are murdered in a month, okay? Can you imagine if we averaged one or two people here at Southland being murdered for being Southlanders? I bet you most of you wouldn't keep coming here. 
60 or 70 a month at times. They had, he talks in their stories one time, I mean, they have to do all their baptisms in secret. He once secretly baptized 13 new believers because they constantly have people getting saved there. He baptized 13 new believers. Somehow word leaked out that he had baptized these people. 11 of them were dead within a couple of weeks. I mean, that's intense pressure. These people go to funerals for loved ones all the time. So Mr. White, he talk, the, the, you know, Pastor White, he talks about miracles. He travels back and forth between England, that's where he's from, and Iraq all the time. He says when he's in Iraq, he ministers, there's signs and wonders. When he ministers in England, no signs and wonders. And he, said, and he says in the book, but he has the same faith in both places. He has the same faith in both places. So how come do they see angels and signs and wonders and miracles in Iraq, but they don't see them in England? Maybe it doesn't have to do with faith. Maybe, and he talks about this in the book, maybe it has to do with the fact that those people need them. They need them to get saved. They need them just to be encouraged. How would you like it if half your family got wiped out? Recently at their church, a five-year-old boy got cut in half by ISIS. How do you, as a mom and a dad, go to that funeral? You need supernatural, something, just, God, are you real? Can you help us? You don't have 10 years to do friendship evangelism with people out there. You say Jesus to the wrong person, you're dead. So you need some signs and wonders to get the gospel across. So I'm not saying that we don't have signs and wonders here. We do sometimes, and we do get miracles here, and I want more, and I pray for more, but we need to, we need to not go searching for signs and wonders. We need to search for love and holiness in the face of God. Thank you. That was, thank you. So, now I took that rabbit trail because what I'm going to say next, the Christian life is supposed to be a life of power. I said all that, but I want to come back here because now I want to talk about power. The Christian life certainly is supposed to be a life of power. I had to cut out a bunch of verses. I'll just show you one. I just don't have time. But 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Everybody said, and I could show you a bunch of other verses. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. But when you got saved, that God did not give you a spirit of fear. He gave you a spirit of power and love and self-control. So when God says that, and he says it throughout the scriptures, what is he talking about power? First of all, I mentioned this before, power to say no to temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, no, no temptation. There's a whole bunch of temptations that fit under that title. No temptation. Every single temptation anyone's ever been tempted about in this world in history fits under there. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He's more faithful than gravity. He is always there. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's power. That's a promise. If the Spirit of God is in you today, he has given you the power to say no to temptation. I can show you a bunch of scriptures there too, that if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. He's also given you the power to be set free of ruts and bondage. He's also given you the power to be set free of condemnation, guilt, insecurity, self-hate, and self-loathing. Some of you might be sitting there and going, well, I don't feel like I have a lot of bondage. I'm not addicted to pornography. I'm not a drunkard. I'm not addicted to drugs. You feel like... You're pretty much okay, but how many of us live with a constant cloud of condemnation hanging over our heads? 
How many of us wake up morning after morning with a dark, empty, guilty feeling? How many of us go to bed at night loathing ourselves and hating who we are? Did you know that the Spirit of God is in you to give you power that you don't have to live under condemnation, guilt, self-hate, and self-loathing? Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have truly given your life to Christ, you need never feel condemnation again. Can you imagine going through life never feeling condemned, never feeling self-hate and self-loathing? Can you imagine a life like that? This brings me to my next point. Paul prayed this in Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Power for what? That you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, but not power for what? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Spirit of God is in you. Paul's praying. He says there's actually power in you to give you the ability to feel God's love that surpasses all knowledge. Can you imagine that kind of power? Can you imagine being able to feel the rolling billows of God's love for you rolling over your soul from day to day? Instead of waking up with anxiety and fear and self-hate and self-loathing, if you could get up every morning and feel waves of physical, liquid, supernatural love from heaven rolling over your soul, that sounds like heaven already on earth to me. And when you got saved and the Spirit of God went into your heart, that power is available to us. We can ask for it. Power to feel love and joy. And then can you imagine if, as the Holy Spirit gives you the power to understand God's awesome, infinite love for us, as that begins to happen, now it begins to channel outwards and you begin to feel love for other people. Could you imagine that? Some of you can't even imagine it. Because you just don't like people. You don't like yourself, and you don't like people. Those two things go hand in hand. You feel condemned by God. You condemn other people. Those two things go hand in hand. But the fruit of the Spirit is, Galatians 5, 23, love, the power of God is inside of you that you could actually become a loving person. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How many of us need some self-control? Self-control, to not say things we shouldn't say, to not eat things in excess that we shouldn't eat, to not watch things in excess that we shouldn't watch. How? To have that kind of power, to feel loved by God, to love others, to have self-control. That sounds like heaven. That's the power of God. That should be in every Christian life. That's amazing. There's the power to become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There is power inside of each of us by the Spirit of God that we can be made new. Can you imagine? To me, that's always the biggest miracle. I, one of the things I get the most thankful to God for when I'm in my devos in the morning is I thank God when I see that he's actually changing me. When I actually, I don't know if any of you, have, if you've had that experience, but when you're seeking God and there's character issues and, and issues you've been praying about in your family and things that have been going for a long, long time and you can't imagine how they could ever change and then over time the Spirit of God actually changes you, you come to a point where I feel different. I feel different. I'm a new creation. Oh, 
That's amazing. That's the power of God that's in us. We are supposed to live lives of power. So now the question is, why don't we have this power and what on earth does all this have to do with Samson? Well, Samson had the power of God on him too, didn't he? When the Spirit of God was on him, he killed a thousand men with a jawbone. He picked up city gates and ran off with them a mile. I mean, that's just insane. He burst ropes like they were nothing. He killed a lion with his bare hands. When the Spirit of God was on him, there was tremendous power. The same Spirit of God that is in us today. There was tremendous power there on Samson. But the moment he began to break his consecration, he lost his moral strength, first of all. And when he broke that last one with the haircut, he lost all his strength, even to carry out his assignment from God. The power was predicated on his consecration. And the same is true for us. See, there's something that is released in our lives we're, all, we're supposed to be consecrated to God as well. Did you know that? The Christian life, Jesus said the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The whole Christian life is not about believing a set of doctrines and coming to church. I said that a million times here, but how many of us fall into this trap? Why are you a Christian? I'm a Christian because I believe right things and I go to church. I mean, I really do want to go to heaven someday. But then the rest of our life, we just sort of it just sort of happens to us. We just sort of pursue the things of this world. We forget that the Christian life is actually a life of pursuit of Jesus, to love him with everything. That's a consecrated life. Now, we're not talking about consecration in the Nazarite way where we say no to grapes and haircuts and not touching dead bodies, but those things are a sign for us that we are supposed to come separate from the world. Like at a certain point, if we're going to, if God really is our number one thing, we say that in our brains, we say God's my number one thing, but then we do everything that everybody else does, and I'm not just talking about sinful things. There was nothing wrong with eating grapes. There was nothing wrong with getting haircut. The point of the Nazarite vows was not God doesn't like these things. The point of those vows was you are separate to me. You're a vessel. Your life is different. It's not supposed to be ordinary. You're supposed to be seeking me fully. And these things are the sign of it. The same is supposed to be true of us as believers today. We are actually supposed to become separate. Not that we never do anything in the world, not at all, but that we actually separate ourselves from the world in order to be fully devoted to Jesus. That he actually becomes our number one. Not just that we say our number one, but if you look at your priorities, this is the thing. If you look at your priorities, you say, every, every self-respecting Christian says, Jesus is my number one priority. But if you look at your schedule, and you look at where your money goes, and you look at where your thoughts go, what do you worry about? What do you dream of? What do you want more than anything else? You can see whether or not Jesus is actually your number one pursuit. Because lots of people say, I'm seeking after Jesus with everything, but actually they just want everything in the world. They want to eat their grapes and have their hair cut and all that stuff too. And do that and believe in God. Samson never stopped believing in God. He just said, you know what? I'm not ready to be fully devoted. And as a result, no spirit power. The same is true today. The power of the Spirit of God does not just come into you. Yes, I'm not, I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm not talking about forgiveness of sins. Yes, the moment you give your life to Christ, your sins are forgiven. 
But all the rest of these promises that we should be filled with joy, that we should be filled with peace, that we'll be a new creation, that we'll have the power to say no to temptation. Why do we not walk in that? It doesn't come because you just said a prayer once, Jesus, come into my heart. I'll tell you when it comes. It comes when you say, I am leaving this stuff behind so I can make Jesus my number one obsession. And it's in the pursuit of Jesus as my number one uh, pursuit and obsession. That is the pursuit. That is what the Christian life is. That's called consecration. That's called separation. And it's in the consecration that the power of the Spirit is released in your life. James 4, 4 says this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The point of this verse is not that you can never go shopping, not that you can never own a boat or a snowmobile or go to the movies. It's not that you can never do those things. But the point is, if those things are competing with Jesus and you just throw Jesus into the mix and these are all the things you're chasing in your life, you're chasing fun and you're chasing Jesus and you go to church and you have your beliefs, but it's all just mixed together, then you cannot be a friend of God. You cannot be a friend of God and that's why, brothers and sisters, that's why you don't have power in your life. Temptations come your way and you say, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not looking at porn. Yeah, but did you know if you watch every movie and TV show and hockey game and whatever that you want to watch, you say, but none of them are bad. But you know what? If that's where all your time is, there's no power in that. The power comes in being a consecrated vessel to the Lord. That's where the power comes. So you say, I'm not doing anything bad. And see, right there, you know we're asking the wrong, the wrong question. Well, it's, technically it's not bad because, we just, we, because our goal is to enjoy the world instead of Jesus. Not that we can never have enjoyment in the world, but is that where your aim is? If your aim is in the world, there's no spirit power for you to say no to temptation. There's no spirit power for you to rise above being miserable. There's no spirit power in you to spread God. You know, I talk to parents, how do I spread God to my kids? How do I spread God to my kids? Spreading God to your kids is a lot more than taking them to church and praying with them at mealtimes. You know what your kids need to do? They need to smell Jesus coming out of you. That you, mom and dad, actually, this is real to them. It's not just once a week. It's not just supper time. This is real to them. Mom and dad actually love Jesus. And out of that is a spirit power that starts to waft out of you as you chase Jesus and it becomes attractive and it pulls other people in. How many of us lack the power to attract other people to Christ? We lack the power because we haven't been with him ourselves. If you haven't been with Jesus, you know what you're going to end up doing in the Christian life? Going through the motions. You haven't spent time in the Word. You haven't spent time with Him. You haven't felt His love rolling over your soul this morning. I was just spending time with the Lord. And you know, it doesn't always happen like this, but boy, this is why I seek Him. As I'm spending time in His presence, all of a sudden, he just, I could just feel His Spirit rolling over my heart. And the next thing you know, I'm weeping in His presence, and I just feel so loved. And I want to love other people, and I want to love Him back. And that's the, actually the real deal. That's Him. If you aren't regularly pursuing Him like that, you have nothing to give to others. 
You go to church, you talk about God, you pray before the meal, and it's just going through the motions, unless the power of God is actually in you. It's all through a consecrated vessel. So here's what I want to challenge you today. We need to get our consecration back. We need to separate ourselves from the world and make pursuit of Jesus the number one thing in our lives. So number one, pursuing Jesus wholeheartedly starts with prayer in the word. And significant daily time of Jesus needs to become a top priority, not as brownie points, not as legalism. We're not talking here about praying and reading your Bible so that God loves you more. He, he could never love you more than he does right now. We're not talking about you missed your, your devos once and now you just feel condemned, you feel like a bad person. It's not about brownie points. It's about plugging in. You take your lamp, you try to turn the lamp on in your room, and if it's not plugged in, it just doesn't go on. So you say, you stupid lamp. I don't love you anymore. No, he needs to be plugged in to give off light. You need to be plugged into Jesus to have the power of the Spirit in you. And at a certain point, many of us have heard this message many times before, but at a certain point, something needs to rise up in our will. And we need to wrestle down the competing voices in our lives because we have a whole swimming pool full of competing voices. Exercise, work, movies, shopping, whatever it is. Computer, social media, we have competing voices. And I'm not saying get rid of any one of them from your life. If they're second to Jesus, they're fine. But we have this whole competing, screaming mix of voices in our lives, and we throw time with Jesus into there, and time with Jesus regularly gets squeezed out. And when time with Jesus is regularly getting squeezed out by those competing voices, you cannot be consecrated, and you cannot have the Spirit of God powerfully taking over your life the way the Scripture promises us. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 15? And we see this with Samson. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, abides in me. At some point, a big part of abiding is I've got to sit in his presence. I've got to seek his face. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Zero. You can go through the motions. You can keep going to church. You can keep believing all the same things. And yet, you haven't been in the presence of Jesus. There's nothing there. At some point, our will needs to rise up and we need to say, this is a non-negotiable. I am going after Jesus. Did you know only one thing matters? Only one thing. Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha are there with Jesus and this is what happens. The Lord says to Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things. How many of us are anxious and troubled about many things? All the competing voices. How am I going to get this done? How am I going to get to that? How am I going to do that? How am I going to be successful? How am I going to be... We have, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And then he says this, but one thing is necessary. One. One thing. That's from Jesus' mouth. At the end of your life, a lot of these things... All those extra hours of exercise and all the extra hours of social media and all the extra money you made from doing extra work. None of that is going to matter on Judgment Day. One thing matters, and that is, did you walk with the Lord? One thing is necessary, and at a certain point, 
We can all say as self-respecting Christians, my number one thing is Jesus, but if we look at our schedules, will we find it to be true? Because if one thing is the most important thing in my life, I will find it in my schedule, I will find it in my thought life, I will find it in my finances, I will find it everywhere. One thing is necessary. Do you know what a big relief it is when you realize only one thing matters? Oh, the last few months, the Lord's been speaking to me and Ladon a lot about this, my wife. I just go to bed some nights and you know, all kinds of things start to pile up. You start to get a little stressed and then I remind myself, one thing matters. That's like flushing the toilet on stress. <laughs> Give her a little flush. One thing matters. That's a good word picture for you. You can take that home. Now let me help you. I want to help you with this too. I want to help you with your devos. Let me recommend a book for you to check out. It's not in our library yet. It will be at some point, but we're not going to get 2,000 copies anyway, so it's eight bucks. Invest in your soul for eight bucks. It's called Secrets of the Secret Place by Bob Sorge. It's got chapters that are like two or three pages each. They're just short, and I, I forbid you from reading more than one chapter at a time. At that point, you're, that, that's just overeating, okay? This is a great book. You start your devos off, you put on a little music, and you read a chapter. It will encourage you in your prayer life. It will encourage you in your Bible reading. It will encourage you to seek the face of Jesus with everything that's in you. And then one last thing I would challenge you to do. For the rest of this month, prayerfully reflect. What is one thing I can give up this month in order to add something extra for me to seek the face of Jesus? It's in the pursuit. I'm telling you people, it's in the pursuit. As you make Jesus number one, as you say, this is my number one priority, and as you seek him, spirit power begins to re release in your life. You find yourself, Hokey Dinah, I have strength to stand up to stress. I have strength to say no to this. I have strength to say no to that. I have strength. I'm, I'm experiencing more joy. I'm getting satisfied. That's because you were made for a relationship with Jesus and only Jesus can fill you. So I would challenge you the rest of this month to prayerfully reflect this week. This is a double dare. Pick something in your life that you're going to subtract. Something good. Not, I'm not even talking about something bad. Take something out of the competing voices and say, I'm going to subtract that for the rest of this month so that I can do something extra to pursue Jesus and watch the Spirit of God begin to work in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the one thing that can satisfy us. Jesus, there are so many incredible promises in your word about the power that is available to us, the power of the Spirit inside of us to have love and joy and peace and self-control. And Jesus, my prayer for myself and my family and everyone here is, Lord Jesus, fill us with that kind of power. Fill us with the fruit of the Spirit. Help us, God, to put you number one and to make you the one thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.